what we do here is go back, 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 back. It does no service to creating value for people where I came from if I won't say where I came from. And so nobody thought any thought this movie was going to work, and it did. One of my greatest struggles as a journalist is that I'm an emotional person and I'm a sensitive person. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. 10,000 Knows is built on the premise that hearing stories of struggle from people who most of us would consider to be successful is a way for the rest of us to realize that we're not alone. If you've already subscribed on iTunes and you like what you hear, please share it with others. You can take a screenshot of your phone while you're listening, post it on your social media, tag at Matty Dell on Instagram or at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook, email it to friends, or just let people know it exists and how you found it. If you can leave an iTunes review, even better. That really helps. Either way, I appreciate you listening, and I hope you're as inspired by my guests as I am. What's the difference between wannabe entrepreneurs versus real entrepreneurs? You know, like, what's the shift? Really, the real question is, how do you go from dreamer to doer? Welcome to this episode of 10,000 No's. Today, I speak with author Benjamin Hardy. His book, Why Willpower Doesn't Work, will be available for sale on March 6th. 2018, but he's busy with more than just writing. He's currently working toward his PhD in business psychology. He speaks on big stages, and he's raising three foster children under the age of 10 with his wife in South Carolina. What I found interesting is that many of Benjamin's beliefs about how our environment shapes us aren't just theoretic. They can be traced back to his being raised by a drug addict father who is now clean and counseling others. He believes, among other things, that we can increase our productivity and success rates by making disciplined choices to narrow our options and surround ourselves with people who keep us accountable. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So you just you just wrote this book, uh, Why Willpower Doesn't Work. I, I think it comes out in March. Is that right? March of 2018? Yeah, it comes out March 6th. March 6th of 2018. Okay, cool. Uh, wh- how long have you been working on it? Where did it come from? I love the, the 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 content. I've just kind of had, I have not read the book yet, but uh, I've looked at the, the themes there and I kind of love them and they're in line with my podcast. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, uh Obviously, I, I wrote the book for much of 2017, um, and where it came from was uh, it came from like a million different things, <laughs> obviously. But initially, I, I wrote an article, just a test article, and that's one thing that I, I really like about blogging or you know putting out content online is that you know it's kind of like a bunch of small experiments, you know, just testing what works. Um, and I wrote an article that was slightly off of what I normally write about. You know, so I write about self-improvement, entrepreneurship, and psychology. And uh, obviously what I'm writing about on this topic was within that, but it was from a different angle. So I, I'm, I wrote an article about how obviously willpower, it's, it doesn't work, um, and about how the environment is much more powerful if you want to make any permanent change in your life. Uh, and then I just went into a couple strategies about how to actually create that environment. And it was my favorite article. It was not one of the most popular ones that I've written. It, was, it did well, did very well. But it was, to me, it was just like, I wrote it and then I just like, I couldn't stop thinking about the topic. Um, and then uh, it just led me to kind of reflect on a lot of the things in my life. Like, so for example, 
you know, I did grow up in a rough situation, you know, if we're going to talk about failures and stuff, I, I, I grew up in a really harsh situation. Um, you know, my dad was a drug addict, um, just didn't have a lot of stability at home and barely graduated from high school, got addicted to video games and stuff like that. And it wasn't until I, you know, I left and went on a kind of like a service humanitarian mission thing that I was able to kind of recreate who I was. And then obviously for the rest of my life, uh, I've been applying the principles, but Another big example was when my wife and I became foster parents about three years ago. I had, I had for, for the previous five years, so I, we became foster parents in 2015. But since 2010, I've wanted to be a writer. Uh, and it wasn't until we became foster parents, it wasn't until we kind of created a really demanding situation that I was able to actually, interestingly, get the traction I needed to start my writing career, which then took off fast. And it reminds me of the concept, um, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. Like, you know, when you're in a situation where it's just like the demands are high, all of a sudden you have all this newfound motivation that you couldn't have before. And that's, that's what ultimately led me to succeed in my writing is because I had to, my situation forced me to succeed. So yeah, willpower is all about how, you know, your environment is far more powerful than, you know, your internal state, even though in the Western world, you know, we're very individualistic, so we don't even pay attention to our environment or we downplay what it does for us. But this book's all about how to create situations and environments that force you to be successful. Yeah. So tell me about then in that case with, you know, you adopt, congratulations, by the way, uh, with the foster children, how did that, did it change your environment in terms of just now you felt more accountable because you had young lives, uh, kind of depending on you is that the or did you also change your systems and even change where you worked or how you worked or any of that I mean so one of the things I talk about in the book and actually Ray Dalio goes into this is that for people who are very growth oriented they often change from the outside in you know so it's like there's a you know a shift in the environment there's a shift in the situation there's a new opportunity and so you know they they respond to these things uh and so for me when you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't like a pre-planned systematic thing. It was more like, you know, we took on this heavy level of accountability, like you were saying. And yeah, that, that, that situation where I was like, oh, wow, like these kids depend on me. And I also realized my time's going to get sucked a lot more because when it was me and my wife, we had a lot more time. Uh, And I realized, you know, okay, I've been wanting to be this, do this writing thing for a long time if I don't get on this now, you know, time's going to go faster and faster. Uh, cause now more and more of my time is going to be tied up. And so it was kind of a combination of having increased responsibility. It was, it was a response. I mean, it was like having less time and then just kind of saying to myself, this has got to be it. And so I, I started investing money into, uh, online courses and books on how to do it. And, uh, so yeah, it was kind of like the demands of my new situation, kind of compelled me to do what I really needed to do. And what were you doing before for what was your job prior to writing? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm actually still in a PhD program. So when, when we, my wife and I moved to South Carolina in the fall of 2014 for me to start graduate school. So I'm, you know, finishing my PhD and we became foster parents during my first year of grad school. So what my, you know, what my job was, was I was a graduate assistant, you know, I was just like doing graduate work, you know, pretty menial stuff and you get paid like a thousand bucks a month. You know, it's not a lot, but 
So that was kind of what I was doing. And I'm still in the grad program. I'm almost done. I'm almost done with my PhD, but you know, right when we became foster parents, it was just like, okay, like I need to, I need to get serious about this. And, and so I'm still in grad school, but uh, I've almost put almost all of my attention towards building the writing platform. I've been a pretty terrible student, to be honest with you. Really? Um, so, so that's interesting just to hear, you know, terrible student and now you're going for your PhD. Um, I mean, I've been a terrible student in my PhD program (laughs) because I've been so so focused on writing and stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and has the, has the writing, it started as, as a blog. You literally just had a, a website and you had a blog and you started to go and then it, it kind of has picked up traction. Uh, what happened was actually I took a guest uh, blogging uh, online course from John Morrow. It's called Guest Blogger or something like that. It was like $197. And it taught me how to pitch uh, articles onto different websites, you know. And uh, I also started copy pasting my articles into medium.com. So medium.com is created by the people who made Twitter. And uh, it's just one of the biggest online blogging platforms in the world. And I started writing self-improvement and motivational stuff there. And my, my writing just kind of blew up really fast. And, uh, I've been the number one writer on that platform, you know, luckily, you know, out of millions of writers for the last two years, I've, so that's kind of, I don't really write on my own website. I mostly write on medium.com at this point. Wow. That's, that's pretty cool to be the number one writer out of millions of contributors. Um, one of the, the things that you, you know, you talk about like designating, a sacred space, establish a daily environment to stay on course. Um, having grown up with a, a father who was a drug addict, was that something that you felt, you know, I've interviewed some other people here that um, have been victims of, of sexual abuse when they're younger, have had, you know, addicts, that uh, parents that were addicts, and they have said they were on such shaky ground that there was, you know, there was, there was nothing steady. And it's interesting to me that that's what you did. You feel that you were lacking that as a kid. Maybe you weren't aware of it at the time, but did it feel like there there was no firm ground beneath you? And now that's something that uh, you you know you feel is extremely important for someone to to have a foundation to grow from. Yeah, I mean, definitely. That's one of the big things I go into in willpower doesn't work. Is just the fact that you know, who you are in a lot of ways is, is the, is dependent on the situation you're in. So like who you are in one environment is actually very different from who you are in a different environment, who you are in one conversation is different than who you are in a different conversation. And, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, their, 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 their foundation or their environment around them is so unstable that, that how could they ever, you know, get forward momentum in their life? You know, it's why willpower is so popular is because willpower can only exist if a person has, you know, internal conflict, meaning they don't know what they want, or if their environment opposes their goals, you know, and it's super hard to move forward in life if there's no stability. So yeah, I think one thing, you know, and that's, I think this is one of the reasons why people have morning routines in the morning is that's kind of what their sacred space is. They've got some, 
sacred spot where they go. It could be somewhere super simple and they just can go and get aligned with who they really want to be so that they can live with intention throughout the day. You know, for me, my sacred environment's my car. Uh, I don't want to, you know, I wake up early and I don't want to be with around all the energy and the triggers in my environment in my house. And so I go into my car and I drive across the street to a parking lot and I can write in my journal, meditate, pray, and, and kind of put myself in the right frame of mind. And that, keeps me in alignment with who I want to be. So I think it, I think it's super important to have a secret environment. I mean, sorry, a sacred space that you can go to, to kind of keep connected to who you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, um, I had a long time where I didn't really have like a dedicated office space and felt like, it, you know, it's hard to get traction. And once I, I did do that and committed and I have, you know, a space where I can work and know that it's uninterrupted. Um, able to be much more productive. And actually I used to joke that my car was my mobile office. You know, I would, I would go, we live in Southern California. So I'd go, you know, park near, after I dropped the kids at school, I would go park on the bluff overlooking the ocean. I'd say, yeah, you know, I've got the, uh, the ocean view, uh, corner office here sitting in my car and writing. And, um, it is, it is helpful, you know, to remove the distractions, which is, Something you talk about um, is removing the distractions and removing conflicts. Um, could you go into that a little bit? Uh, removing conflicts. Are you talking about kind of internal conflicts of you know what you're like who you're surrounding yourself with um, or having diametrically opposed goals that are kind of keeping you at a standstill? Is that what you mean? Uh, I mean, so it really can be very simple. I mean, so one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, removing, changing your default options. So like most people, they, so most of our behavior is subconscious. We don't even know, or, you know, it, what psychologists say is almost all of our behavior is outsourced to our environment. You know, so like every environment has written or unwritten rules. You know, it's like when you enter someone's house, in some people's houses, it's the custom to take off your shoes. You know, in other people's houses, it's not. Like, you're not going to smoke on an airplane. You know what I mean? And so every environment has rules, and they kind of create default behaviors. And so, you know, I think just thinking more mindfully about your situation, about who you're around, about what your situation is, can really help you um, – to kind of make your default automatic behavior what you want it to be. So, I mean, that could be as easy as removing distractions, uh, keeping your cell phone off your body. Like if you're going out to dinner and you really want to be present, like just don't bring your phone. Like if the phone's on your person, that's a bad default. You know what I mean? You're probably going to like subconsciously pull it out. Um, I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot of ways. I mean, you can, you can invest, for example, in mentorships or in mastermind groups and you can, you can make, you can put yourself in environments where the default is to be successful because that's what everyone is doing in those situations. And so I think it's just like, what's the default behaviors in this environment? And do I want to actually be a part of that? Cause every environment has defaults and people fall into the, fall into them. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, you know, behavioral checks and balances. I like what you're saying about, you know, you go on an airplane, nobody's smoking on an airplane. That's just what is expected and what is not expected and kind of, I guess, setting yourself up for success by putting yourself within these, these parameters and choosing to do that. Um, let me ask you, did you, when I started looking through your materials, I thought, huh, I wonder if he was in the military, like a lot of your, but you don't, 
I, 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 I'm not getting, you know, getting that from our conversation right now, but did you have any um, major structural, like what was the biggest influence on you with some of these theories in terms of, was it just trial, by, trial and error, or were you a part <laughs> of something that was uh, extremely disciplined? Because it sounds like you have a lot of discipline. Oh, thanks. Uh, I definitely was not in the military. Uh, I did serve like a humanitarian mission, which gave me a ton of structure, you know, back, you know, like 10 years ago. Um, but I think, you know, I think a lot of it's just, so in today's world, there's like a million choices, right? And there's a book called the paradox of choice. And it's all about how, when you have too many choices, it's hard to make any choices, you know? And, and the problem with the world is that there's, you know, so one thing that I think, oh, I forgot his name now. He's like one of the smartest economists. I forget now. Might have been like, uh, I don't even know now. But basically he said that the biggest problem that we're going to face in today's world is that for the first time we actually have to govern ourselves. We actually have choices. Whereas in previous generations, you know, it's like, think about it. Like if you grew up like 300 years ago, it's like your dad was a farmer, you're a farmer. Um, you know, and so like now we live in an environment where we have choices and we're just not ready to make those choices. We don't, we, we just don't own it. We can't take the responsibility. So I think one of the things that helps me myself is just eliminating as many of the bad or, or even good options as I can. Cause as, uh, as Jim Collins said, in good to great, you know, good is the enemy of great. And just because something is good doesn't mean it should, should use your time. I mean, we all have a finite amount of time and an infinite amount of options now. And so for me, it's just like create an environment where most of those options are totally outside my scope. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, you could call it discipline for me. It's just like, I just don't want to deal with most of the stuff that's out there. And so I, I create an environment where I don't even have to think about it. Yeah. It's almost as though, well, well, what's, what's actually cool about it is that you're, you know, self-described that you're, you're weren't a good student and yet somehow you're going for your PhD and you are disciplined to write. It's almost like you've created these systems or these rules because you had a hard time following them on your own, which is actually kind of great for coaching other people. Um, because sometimes someone who's really got that internal self-discipline can't really understand how another person could not have that. Whereas you're going like, Hey, it's fine. Even if you don't naturally have it in your DNA, these are pragmatic ways that you could approach your life or whatever it is that you're going after and increase your chances of success just by doing these things, just by eliminating, you know, the bottom 10 things on a list of 15 or whatever it might be. Um, so tell me about, uh, what was it? Did you grow up in South Carolina? No, I actually grew up in Utah um, and then just, have, you know, moved around. So and I didn't grow up here in the South, but happy to live here. Probably going to live here for, not in Clemson, probably end up moving to Orlando next, but. Yeah. Yeah. And and what, you know, were you kind of in a, a rural environment in Utah or were you kind of in. in I grew up in Salt Lake City, actually, just like right in the city. Yeah. And involved in, in sports or anything like that growing up or anything? Yeah, I played sports. I mean, you know, given the mountains and stuff like that, I did a lot of snowboarding, skateboarding. I did some sports, but, uh, you know, for me, I really liked snowboarding. It's just so huge out there in Park City and stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a skier, so I uh, I can identify with that. And I love 
Utah has uh, some of the best snow in the country, probably. Um, and uh, so, you know, at the beginning you were saying, um, I wanted to be a writer. And at one point you said, you know, the, you know, I was going to do the writing thing. I'm wondering when, and now it sounds like you are full blown. I mean, the fact that you're the, the, the number one writer out of a bunch of contributors at, um, where the platform, what is it? Medium? Yeah. Medium.com. Medium.com. Um, you are fully doing it. What was, what was the transition for you uh, into kind of having the courage to put it out there? And then what were, you know, if any, were there, were there setbacks where you kind of would, would post something and then possibly cringe or the critic in your head is going, oh my God, why, why did you write this? Or did you get any bad feedback and how did you adjust and how did you kind of react to it in order to, to go forward? Yeah. Yeah. So I I love this question because this is actually like the center of what I've been researching in my PhD for the last four years. And it's also just kind of the process of how I live. So what I study is what's the difference between wannabe entrepreneurs versus real entrepreneurs, you know, like what's the shift really the real question is how do you go from dreamer to doer? Um, that's what I've been studying for the past four years and applying in my own life. Um, and really as simple as it is, a lot of it has to do with creating an investment in yourself. Like, and a lot of it has to do with the demands of your situation. As I've been talking about, you know, like I became a foster parent, you know, I took on greater responsibility, but also what's the big difference between going from dreamer to doer. A lot of it has to do with just investing actual money into your dream. You know, like a lot of the wannabe entrepreneurs, they're still kind of like thinking about it. They're not actually putting money towards it, even if they don't have a lot of money. So like when I first started like saying, okay, I'm going to become a writer, you know, I, I, I didn't have it in my head yet that I yet was a writer. You know, there, there's an identity shift that happens. You go from saying, I want to become this thing to you saying, I am this thing. And that happens when you start actually um, investing money in it, you know, like, you, when you start, so like I started paying for online courses and studying it, you know, and I like pay a few hundred dollars to do an interview with one of my favorite authors, you know, and it was just kind of like when you start paying money towards something, you experience what economists call sunk cost bias, which means that like once you become invested in something, you start to wrap your identity around it and you start to become really committed to it. Um, and so when I started investing money in my, in my, you know, in my writing career, I paid $800, which, you know, for us at the time was a lot of money to buy a domain name. I put up a website, you know, I, I paid for some online courses. I learned how to write, I learned how to write viral headlines. And then I just started writing. Like once you start investing, you start feeling compelled to actually go. Uh, and plus my situation, as I mentioned earlier, kind of demanded me to succeed because I had people de- de- depending on me and because, uh, I kind of created the pressure in myself as well. So like you've got external pressure uh, and then you've got internal pressure and uh, the external pressure in a lot of ways is what creates the internal pressure. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I just felt compelled to succeed. I started investing money and when I invested money in my goals, uh, I started becoming more committed to them and started to actually make that transition where I saw myself as a writer. And then I just kept investing more and more, you know, in my own self-improvement and my relationships and my, uh, skill development and making sure my work succeeded. And, you know, you don't have to start with money. Like, you know, you could start with very few dollars. Like I said, when I was in graduate school at the beginning, I was making less than a thousand bucks a month. But when you invest even a little bit in yourself, you can quickly, you know, upgrade your, upgrade your mindset, 
about what you can do and have. And eventually it just keeps going up and up and up and up and up. And very quickly you can kind of find yourself where you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally identify with that. Uh, In fact, I was interviewed recently and was talking about the same, you know, the transition to being able to say to people with a straight face, I'm an actor in the beginning, you know, now I've been doing it over two decades, but in the beginning it was, you'd say like, oh yeah, I'm waiting tables. I'm trying to be an actor. And then like eventually be like, I'm an aspiring actor. And it took, it took a while to fully own it. And, um, it's also interesting about the spending money. When I first declared, you know, out loud that I was going to be an actor, which was kind of it's seemingly out of nowhere. I went and I got headshots and I, and the thinking for me was, I mean, at the time I was in college and this is, you know, 20 something years ago that my thinking was if I spend a couple hundred bucks on headshots, I'll, I'll do this. You know, like it, it was just the same thing you just said. It was like, now it's no longer a theory. It's like, I've, I've laid money out, so let's make it worthwhile. And, and I ended up I don't think I ever even really used those headshots because that was in Boston. I went to New York City and they're like, yeah, these are no good. But it gave me the motivation and it gave me kind of the the anchor in the future for, to, to pull me to it. So I completely identify with and, and agree with what you're just saying there. I mean, what's cool about it is, is this, you know, earlier in this conversation, you mentioned, you know, some people it's quote unquote, not in their DNA uh, or something like that. But you know, what the research and psychology actually shows is that it's not necessarily your personality that creates your behavior. It's your behavior that creates your personality. And so it's like when you started investing money, you were behaving in a certain way that then led you to identifying as an actor. You know what I mean? And so it's, it's kind of cool because our, our personalities or who we are is a lot more fluid than we think it is. You know, like we have a lot, you know, in Western culture, we have personality tests and we have all these things and we like to put ourselves in boxes. But the truth is, we as people are a lot more fluid than we give ourselves credit for. We can change our identity. You know, if you want to become an actor, you can become an actor. And that's what you did. You started investing money. You bought those headshots and that kind of gave you the energy to go out to New York and try some stuff, you know? And so you, you started behaving in ways that led you to become who you are. Yeah. And then you get positive reinforcement and then you get more opportunities and that allows you to do it again. Then you get better. And yeah. And it's kind of a vicious cycle in a good way. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, talk to, oh, by the way, I'm just hearing myself on your end. Uh, just wonder, do you have headphones on or no? No, I don't. I'm okay. sorry. Totally. Sorry about that, dude. <laughs> Hopefully. All right. I'll space back. I'm, I'm way back. Okay. No, you're good. Um, hope we'll, we'll, we'll check it at the end and see how it is. Um, so where is it? Where is it going with this? Um, Okay, I kind of want to go back to the, you, you know, if you're if you're okay with talking about it, because I just think it's it's so extreme, and people who have not lived it uh, would have no idea of the obstacles you've overcome. Um, you said that your your father was uh, a drug addict. I mean, how how does one, you know? bounce back from that because I would imagine that, you know, there's normal swings and mood shifts in a family, but I would imagine that you dealt with some pretty extreme situations. And, you know, what was it 
in your opinion, then that in your opinion, that kind of that saved you um, and allowed you to move forward the way you have? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it's really what I dive into in the book. Willpower doesn't work. Um, I had to change my environment, you know, like um, if I had stayed where I was, it wouldn't have helped anyone. It wouldn't have helped my family. It wouldn't have helped my, my dad. It wouldn't have helped me. We would have all just kind of created a negative vicious cycle like you're talking about. And so I needed to go away and kind of build myself and become a human being. Um, and then when I did that, I was able to actually help my family. I was actually able to, you know, see things from the outside rather than being so trapped. Um, so I, I had, I, I myself, you know, and this was, you know, when I was like 19, 20, I had to leave. I had to go and figure things out. That's a little harder if you're, you know, married or whatnot in your situation. Um, but I mean, that's what happened to me when I was, you know, a high school kid and, and my life was rough was, I mean, I just, at the time when I was in high school, I just kind of suppressed it all, which is what a lot of people do. You know, they suppress their negative traumas. They suppress their, their pain. And, uh, there's a quote that I really love. It's you're as sick as your secrets. And so, you know, if you, as long as you keep that stuff suppressed, as long as you keep that stuff inside of you, you know, it's going to haunt you. It's going to, it's just going to keep you frozen in time. Uh, and, and you won't be able to, you know, continue to develop as a human being until you, you let that stuff out. And often in order to get that stuff out of you, you've got to create a new situation where you're around new types of people so that, so that you're not so trapped within that same, that same space. Did you physically move to another state or did you just move out of the house? I did, did. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, uh, I moved to Pittsburgh, uh, did some like humanitarian missionary service for a while. Um, and just kind of, you know, but even, you know, you can apply it on different levels. I mean, even since I've been married, I, I got rejected to grad school, uh, the first time I applied and we decided to take a, like a summer off and move to Europe. And there's a program called WOOF. It's called, a, it's an acronym, Worldwide Opportunity for Organic Farming. And you can do it all over the world, but it's, it's basically you, you go live somewhere and you work on a farm for room and board, you know. And after I got rejected from graduate school, we left. We lived in Europe for two or three months. Didn't cost us really any money because, you know, you just work for room and board. But again, being outside the routine environment, you're able to get some insights and inspiration and some clarity. And then you can come back and kind of re reorient and resituate your life. Huh? And you, and you said that you kind of were able to come back and help your family. Did you, um, you know, after that initial uh, move at 19 or 20, do have you, did you reconnect with your dad? And is, is the, I'm not sure if your folks are still alive or not, but if so, uh, what, what does that relationship look like now? Is it more, uh, is it more productive and healthy? Do you feel, or, or how is that? Yeah, yeah, it definitely is, man. Um, we've been able to make huge progress. Uh, yeah. I mean, while I was away, you know, my, my dad kind of spent a lot of hard work kind of getting clean and he's, he's, he's done well, man, for the last decade, you know, he's, you know, cause I left, you know, almost 10 years ago. And, uh, then I came, you know, moved back, but in that time he, he got healthy and, you know, he's doing really well now. So, I mean, I'm, I've got close relationships with my mom and my dad and, uh, we're, none of us are perfect. Obviously we all still have our problems, but we've all done a lot of healing together. And so, yeah, we're, we're That's doing great. great. And, uh, 
my, you know, my dad, he, uh, he became an addiction recovery kind of like, you know, coach, I guess you could say. And, you know, he spent a lot of time helping other people, whether it be addiction to drugs, alcohol, pornography, whatever it is, you know, like just, he would facilitate groups. And I mean, so, I mean, he's, he's doing pretty well. Yeah. Man. I was just going to ask you, cause you said you had gone and done some humanitarian work and that really helped. And you're saying your dad has now helped people out. Um, it comes back to that, that theme of, you know, when you go and serve others, you end up, you end up helping yourself and you end up kind of finding your purpose. It sounds like your dad kind of has, has done that as well. Uh, and, and so have you, I mean, you know, if you look at what you're doing, this book is, is really, uh, it sounds like advice to yourself that has worked and now you're sharing it with others. And it sounds like your dad, you know, similar kind of thing. My question is, do you have any siblings and have they, have they recovered as, as well as you have? Uh, well, so that's a really awesome question. Um, so my youngest, or sorry, I have two younger brothers. I'm the oldest of three. Um, and, uh, my younger brother, Trevor, he's had his struggles, you know, my parents impact, my parents divorce impacted him a lot worse than it impacted me. I kind of suppressed it a lot further and then was able to leave, but he's, he's, he's going through his own recovery as well. Uh, And he's, you know, he's, he's making progress. Um, my youngest brother is autistic. And so, you know, it's a little harder to measure with him. He's doing pretty well as well though. I mean, so, I mean, it's, you know, there's a whole idea that, you know, nothing exists in isolation. So like, you know, when you change a part, you change the whole, you know, you can't change one part of any system without changing the whole system. Uh, and so like when you start to change the patterns of a family, it does impact everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. And that's why, yeah, you just have to kind of, you know, you, you worry about helping yourself and in the process of helping yourself, you're going to end up helping the people around you. Um, could you talk a little bit about this, um, this something that you say about outsource your, you say outsource your motivation to high pressure environments and then, uh, rotate your environments, change it up based on the work you're doing. Could you kind of explain the outsourcing your motivation to high pressure environments? What is, what is, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, what psychologists say is that almost all of our behavior is actually outsourced to our environment. Like it's kind of like with what I said about being on the airplane, like, you know, you're not going to smoke on an airplane. Well, rather than relying on willpower, which is what most people do, it's so much smarter to just put yourself in a situation where motivation is the norm, you know? So like, as an example, like I've invested money, you know, to be a part of, you know, amazing mastermind groups or like develop great mentorships. Basically it's the, it goes along with the whole quote that you're basically, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And so it's like, you know, you can outsource your willpower to an environment that doesn't require it because your automatic default behavior is just to be excellent. You know, you can outsource motivation to environments where, you know, it's just expected that you succeed. So you don't have to try to wonder if you're going to do it. And so for me, what's the, what, what that's been is put myself into mastermind groups, you know, get mentorships, you know, even just the person you marry, you know, like <laughs> their standards for you in a lot of ways determines who you become yourself. Like there's a idea in psychology, it's called the Pygmalion effect. And basically what it means is that we rise or fall to the expectations of those around us. And so, you know, put yourself with 
put yourself around people who have higher standards for you than you have for yourself and you'll rise to those standards. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then rotate your environments, change it up based on the work you're doing. Okay. So it's the same kind of thing where depending on what it is that your goals are, those are the people that you need to be around or the situations or institutions or groups that you need to be a part of. Yeah. I mean, with that, with that specific concept, what I'm actually talking about is like, you know, don't do, you know, what, what a lot of people do is they work in a cubicle or they work in one spot and they do like a ton of different types of work in the same physical space. Whereas people who are really aware of the power of, of their environment, they, they, they literally change their environment. They change their situation based on the work they're doing. So like the person I interviewed for that chapter was Ari Mizell. He's a really successful online author, uh, entrepreneur. He studies productivity and he's, he's a brilliant guy but he literally works in different workspaces multiple times a week. Like when he's writing blog posts, he works at the Soho house, which is in New York because of how the lighting is and the internet is there and stuff. And it allows him to focus really intensely when he's recording podcasts. He does that like at a studio when he's, you know, doing work calls. He does that at a, you know, at a buddy's apartment. Like the idea is, is like your, your environment should match the work you're doing because if your environment makes it difficult or harder to do your work, you're not going to be as effective. So, I mean, that's just kind of like matching, matching your inner state with your outer state so that what you do is super productive. Yeah. yeah that's, that's really interesting. Um, I feel like I've probably organically done that without realizing that that was a, a theory, but there are some times when I feel the urge to, you know, to go for a walk or you feel the urge to go exercise or you want to sit yourself at a desk, depending on what it is you're doing. And, uh, I guess, you know, on, on the flip side, I've also done things where I could have, you know, as you would call it like a sacred space and end up, you know, doing the bills in there or doing something that really kind of bums me out. That's like the minutia of life. And, and then the next time you go back there to try to be creative in that space, you're not as inspired. You're more bothered or bogged down in some way. That's that's interesting to hear someone actually. Uh, I, I I don't know that I've heard that so specifically put as a, as a theory. You know. Yeah. No. I mean, it's not even just a theory. It's really a. It's more based on research in the mindfulness area. Just about you know being aware of your of your environment, your situation around you and how that impacts you. So yeah, it's not necessarily a theory. It's more just based on uh, understanding, you know, the science behind mindfulness and about how, just how it works. Sounds like you're already a mindful person, you know, so that's awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's um, trying to be more mindful every day. Um, so what, what do you have, you know, what are kind of the, the plans you got the book coming out in, in March um, do you speak at all or are you still, is it still while you're going for your PhD, you're not quite doing that yet? Or is that something that you hope to do at some point or counsel people in some way? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, so my, my PhD is not in, uh, like clinical psychology or anything like that. I'm, I study business psychology. Um, and I, I, I've, I've already, I've already done a lot of speaking, um, you know, in the past, few years, you know, with my writing doing as well as it's done, I've been able to speak on lots of big stages and I love speaking. I think it's something great. You know, my main focus this year is getting this book out there and uh, I'll write a few more books and 
Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, there's a quote by Peter Diamandis. He wrote the book Bold and Abundance and stuff like that. He said, when you have one of two choices, take both. So for me, it wasn't, you know, grad school or writing. I just decided to take both, you know, and just build my career as a graduate student. And, you know, it's, it's been very lucrative. It's been very successful. And it's, and I'm still, you know, still in school because I don't think you have to do one or the other. You can do both at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like what you're studying. I mean, you've, I I don't know if uh, a lot of the people that you're quoting while we've been talking are people that you knew prior to grad school or it's, you know, some of the stuff that you've been learning in school, but it's certainly hand in hand with everything, um, that you seem to believe in with the, with the book in terms of all of the, the whole message of the book seems to be backed up by all of this. Um, so it's not like you're, you know, it's not like you're going to school for, I don't know. I can't think of something that that's, that's completely, you know, in the opposite direction to what you do. It sounds like you're actually just getting more educated and, and more knowledge in the field that you already are kind of, uh, doing well in? Yeah. I mean, most of the people in my program, you know, they're studying the theory of this stuff. Whereas for me, I want to study the application of it. You know what I mean? For me, it's like, okay, you know, I could sit and study theories about leadership or theories about motivation, but that's not, that's not me. You know, I'm not going to be an academic. I'm, I'm, I literally want to understand how this stuff works so that I can actually live it in the real world. And the theory and the application are always very different. You know what I mean? Like, when you actually, you know, knowing something in your head versus actually understanding and living it are two, two very different types of knowledge. And so for me, I'm loving learning the theory and stuff like that, but more importantly, trying to put it into practice and seeing how it works in the real world is way more interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and how, how old are you, by the way? You sound, you sound young, um, but uh, just from everything you're saying, I'm imagining uh, you're maybe at least 30. Um, <laughs> I literally just turned 30 this year. Okay. So I, I turned 30 about three weeks okay. ago. I mean, that's still young to me, but that's, uh, you sound really young. It's, it's interesting. You got, you know, um, it's funny when I, doing this remotely is always a trip because uh, it's just, you know, seeing some of your writing and then, and then putting that, you get an idea and then you put the, the, the voice to the, to the writing. And it's, it's very, um, it's very interesting to me, like, you know, whatever images are conjured up, like you're saying, yeah, I had no, I have nothing to do with the military. And for whatever reason, when I had read some of your stuff, I was like, oh, I might be a military guy. It's, <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's fun when you kind of get, get a little bit more of the picture. Yeah. Right? You know what? Tell me, tell me something because it sounds like it's, it's very important to you. Um, your foster children, how, uh, first of all, how many do you have and how does that how does that work um in terms of are they is it is it a a temporary period of time or is it uh, are they with you for the long haul how does that how does it all work yeah so um we we've had them for 3 years we got them at the beginning of 2015 it's a sibling group of 3 you know 3 it's a two boys and a girl, six, six years old, eight years old, and 10 years old. Um, so our goal is to adopt these kids, but the foster care system is 
at least in South Carolina, it's totally bogus. And uh, it's, they, they put up so many impediments and roadblocks and stuff to actually like making a positive impact in these kids' lives. It's totally ridiculous. Um, but we've been in court for, you know, over two years now and things are finally starting to come to a close and we're, looks like we're finally going to get to adopt these kids. And uh, once we do, we're, you know, we're going to, I'm going to finish up my school and we're going to, you know, adopt these kids and we're going to move to somewhere else. And so, yeah, I mean, it's very meaningful. I mean, when we first got these kids, it was a tough transition. I'd never been a parent before. I, uh, I wasn't as patient as I've become. Uh, and I, you know, it took a lot of time for me to actually like learn to love these kids. It was a lot more instant for my wife, but it took, it took a lot of, uh, intention and, and a change of heart and really coming to love and appreciate these kids. And then just all of us changing and growing together and becoming more of a family. Um, but yeah, I think it's an awesome opportunity. And obviously there's a lot of people out there who need help. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been an amazing experience. And I, I always say, you know, I really wouldn't have been as successful of a writer as I am if I hadn't had this experience, uh, cause it fuels my writing and because it, you know, it, it challenges me in ways that allow me to get deep into my own feelings and good writing isn't just scientific, you know, even in the nonfiction world, it's gotta be really dense with emotion. So yeah, it's been a great experience. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, well, I'm just thinking, you know, you go from, I have, I have two kids myself and they're three years apart and, you know, there's, there's a pregnancy, you know, there's leading up to the pregnancy, then there's the pregnancy and then you have one and then, you know, that's three years. And then three years later, your wife is pregnant again. And there's like kind of a built-in learning curve that it's with your situation. It's like, boom, three kids just, you know, from zero to a hundred in 0.2 seconds. I can only imagine that is full of challenges and obstacles, regardless of how excited you are to do it. Um, it's gotta be, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work to be a parent and to, to all of a sudden have three kids, um, in your care must be an incredible adjustment. Oh yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's one of the things I talk about a lot in the book, you know, is it's kind of like jumping in a pool, you know, it's like you could tiptoe your way in, you know, and you know, Obviously, when you're having a kid in the, in the typical way, you know, that's just kind of built in. There's a system of how that works. But when it comes to taking on big challenges, you know, outside of having kids, you can kind of try to tiptoe your, your way in the pool or you can just jump in and experience the intense emotional shock that occurs when you <laughs> just enter a new situation. You know, and that's kind of how parenting was for us. It was, like, it was just like jumping in the pool, but you, you know, think about it you know, when you jump in, it may be cold for 20 seconds, but then you have to force, you know, your body acclimates to the new environment. And so for us, we were forced to adapt really quick. You know, it's, we're still adapting in a lot of ways, but you know, it's, you, you shock your system and then you just kind of adjust yourself to the new environment. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I mean, I can only imagine. And how old did you say they were when, when they came to live with you? Three, five and seven. Wow. And obviously, you know, a host of emotional baggage, you know, getting taken from your parents' house, having, you know, having grown up in a super neglectful environment, you know, uh, so it's not like you get these kids that are angels, you know, you get these kids with demons, you know, it's just like, and there's so much suppressed trauma and pain and you've got to deal with that and learn how to, how to handle it without freaking out yourself because you don't know how to handle it. And it's something you've never done before. And, uh, you know, you, you have your own baggage yourself that you're dealing with the stresses of either school or work or life. And 
and you've, you've got to like overcome all that so that you can reach these kids where they're at and not just freak out at them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a houseful. I mean, that's a houseful right away. Um, it, well, good for you guys for, you know, for doing that, you figure that's a, it's a real lifeline to those kids. I mean, and is some of the motivation coming from your own upbringing and feeling like, Hey, you know, if I can give back in some way to a young life and and help them with some of the things that maybe were difficult for me growing up, is that some of the motivation or was it more like your, your wife had the idea and then you guys, you know, came up with it together or what, what was the impetus? Uh, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I wish it was a little bit more noble, but my wife did have the idea and I just totally was like, all right. You know, like, yeah, it's not like I was against it. You know, I'm a big believer in family. Um, but it was my, my wife's idea and I just have kind of come along for the ride and thankfully been able to, you know, have a heart, you know, change of heart along the journey and really come to love it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you for staying open. And uh, I'm sure your wife appreciates it. I mean, I'm sure it's, you know, I I can only imagine it's not, you know, it's not an easy road whenever you have kids involved. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's full of tons of obstacles, but it sounds like you guys are managing your way. And I'm sure there's, there are good days and bad days, but it's, um, it's great for those kids. That's really cool. Yeah, man. Um, well, listen. Uh, thank you for for taking you know the time to to talk about the book. Why don't you just give everybody? I, I know it's called "Why Willpower Doesn't Work," but let everybody know where they can they can find the book. Again, give them that date when it's coming out in March. And if you have social media or you have you know your uh, the blog posts on Medium dot com, anything, just uh, let us know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. So yeah, willpower doesn't work is the book. And, um, you know, you can Google Benjamin Hardy.com and you can go to Benjamin Hardy.com and find the book or read any of my blog posts. Uh, you know, you'll find them on medium.com. Um, really easy. If you just Google Benjamin Hardy, you'll, you'll find all my stuff. Uh, and if you want to, you know, grab the book, you can grab it on Amazon or you can go to willpower doesn't work.com. Okay. So yeah, man, thanks for having me on the show, Matthew. Seriously. Uh, it's an honor, man. Yeah, You're man. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, and uh, good luck with the book. I'll, I'll be watching to see what happens with it. I'm, I'm really excited and to see what other books you come up with uh, in the future. Thanks again for listening to 10,000 No's. If you haven't subscribed to us yet, please do. So each week's episode is automatically downloaded to your computer or phone. And if you like what you heard, please help us get the word out by sharing it with your friends and family. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.